Welcome, and thank you for joining Latter-day Stone Catchers, where we believe the gospel is love-centered and stones should be caught and never thrown. My name is Jeff, and whether you're joining through YouTube or the podcast, I'm glad you're here. This week we are continuing our study with Come Follow Me. The chapters of study for this week are Matthew chapters 9 and 10, Mark chapter 5, and Luke chapter 9. Some of the stories and events that are in these chapters we've talked about in previous episodes, so we're going to skip over them. There is a lot in these chapters. We won't be able to cover everything, but we are going to hit some major highlights. Again, some of my favorite stories from the New Testament. Matthew chapter 9 starts with Jesus hearing the man taken with a palsy who was let down through the roof. Jesus forgave his sins and then healed him miraculously as others looked on. We've covered that in two previous episodes, so we'll skip over it today. Then it mentions the calling of Matthew, who in the Gospel of Matthew is actually called Matthew. In the other two accounts of this event, he's called Levi. And then after that, it mentions something I do want to spend a minute on. In Matthew chapter 9, verse 10, it says, And it came to pass, as Jesus sat at meat in the house, behold, many publicans and sinners came and sat down with him and his disciples. This is one of the many references in the Gospels of Jesus dining with publicans and sinners. In case you forgot, a publican was a tax collector who collected taxes from the Jewish people on behalf of the Romans. And publicans, like Matthew, were Jews but were hated by the Jewish people because they were working on behalf of the Romans. Suffice it to say that the Jews did not take kindly to publicans and also, of course, looked down on sinners. So the fact that Jesus was dining with and enjoying time with publicans and sinners obviously ruffled the feathers of those of the religious establishment. It says in verse 11, And when the Pharisees saw it, they said unto his disciples, Why eateth your master with publicans and sinners? Before we move on to the next verse, I wanted to share something that I wrote in the margin of my scriptures from the one-volume interpreter's commentary on the Bible. It's a little bit long, but I think it speaks perfectly as to why Jesus is doing this and why it's so important and what we can learn from it. This is what it says. And I'll put this entire quote in the description or the show notes so that you can go and copy and paste it from there if you want to. Again, this is from the interpreter's one-volume commentary on the Bible. And this is what it says in reference to these verses. The tradition linked the story of the call of the tax collector with that of the meal which Jesus ate at his home. Such a person was considered ceremonially unclean by Jewish standards. The disregard of dietary and cleansing regulations is further evident in that there were present in the same meal other undesirables as adjudged by the official standards of Judaism, with whom Jesus also enjoyed table fellowship. To eat a meal with someone was considered to be a most intimate kind of personal contact, so that a scrupulous Jew would be extremely careful about the company in which he would share a meal. Jesus, however, has no hesitation about such contacts, and under pressure to account for his lax attitude, justifies what he is doing on ground that this is a part of the mission that God has sent him to fulfill. I came not to call righteous, but sinners. The setting of the story, which pictures Pharisees as witnessing the meal, is probably artificial, but the message is doubtless historical. Jesus saw his messianic mission as calling into the fellowship of God's people the religious outcasts, rather than as confirming the pridefully righteous in their sense of moral superiority. That last line is really powerful. I'll read it one more time. Jesus saw his messianic mission as calling into the fellowship of God's people the religious outcasts, rather than as confirming the pridefully righteous in their sense of moral superiority. Powerful stuff. I love that it talks about how sharing a meal with these individuals was not really the same as just going out to dinner like we think about it in these days. While you wouldn't do that with just anybody, 
in Jesus' time, religious people were extremely careful about who they shared a meal with. It was an intimate setting and one that should not be shared with those who were considered unclean by the standards of the day. Jesus did not care about that. He spent time with these people who were considered religious outcasts or unclean or unworthy by the religious standards of the day because, as it says, that was his messianic mission, to gather the religious outcasts, not to confirm those who were pridefully righteous in their sense of religious superiority. If we move on to the next verse, the excerpt from that book already referenced some of the things it says. But when Jesus heard that, that the Pharisees had complained about him dining with sinners and publicans, he said unto them that they that be whole need not a physician, but they that are sick. Now, we've heard Jesus say that in a few other places in the Gospels already, but Matthew is the only place where he says this next part, which is actually a quotation from Hosea in the Hebrew Bible. Jesus goes on and says, But go ye and learn what that meaneth. I will have mercy and not sacrifice, for I am not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Now, the King James Version is a little bit confusing. We can look in the footnote and it says instead of, I will have mercy, the Greek word would better be translated as, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. And that's what most of the other translations indicate as well. So Jesus is telling them, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. In other words, mercy, inclusion, forgiveness, that is more important than ritual, ceremonial, religious rites, or worship. While those things are useful and good, they are only useful and good insofar as they point us towards being like Jesus Christ, loving as he loved, including as he included, and doing the things that he did. And I think most of us are smart enough to know that when Jesus says he's not, he hasn't come to call the righteous to repentance, he's not saying that there are some on earth who don't need to repent. And if you want scriptural support from that, we know that from the writings of Paul, he said in his epistle to the Romans that none are righteous, not one. So Jesus isn't saying that I only need to spend time with sinners because they're the ones who need to repent. He's saying there's nothing I can do to help those who are self-righteous and think that they don't need me. I am going to spend time with those who know that they do need me. Those who you have cast out of your churches and your synagogues and your company. Those are the people who I am here to save because they know that they need saving. They know that mercy is more important than sacrifice. And I think it's very powerful the way that Jesus approaches that subject when he says, go ye and learn what that meaneth. In other words, this is something you really need to think about, that I desire mercy and not sacrifice. I think it's very easy for us in any church, including the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, to get caught up in ritual worship, which is good. Participating in ordinances and covenants is fantastic. Those can point us towards our Heavenly Parents, towards our Savior Jesus Christ, and they can be so good. But if we make that the center of our worship, if we make that the center of our religion, then we have looked beyond the mark. We have missed the point. Because Jesus Christ is saying right here, mercy is greater than sacrifice. Or we might say mercy is greater than ordinances which would be our modern-day equivalent of sacrifices in Jesus' day. Also in Matthew chapter 9 is a wonderful story about the raising of Jairus' daughter from the dead, as well as the woman with the issue of blood. However, Mark's version has more detail, so we'll save that until we get to Mark chapter 5.
In Matthew chapter 9, verse 35, it says, Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. I've noticed, especially in reading these chapters, that almost every time it mentions preaching, it says he's preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing. You'll notice that in a couple other verses we reference in these chapters, specifically when Jesus is telling his apostles what to do. He'll send them forth to preach the gospel of the kingdom and also to heal. The two go hand in hand. And I love that it's called the gospel of the kingdom because remember, the kingdom of God or Zion is a place where everybody is treated as equals. It's a place where we are different, but we are all united in our faith in and love for our heavenly parents and Savior Jesus Christ. It's a place where there are no poor among us, financially, emotionally, spiritually, or in any other way. It's a place where we have all things in common. It's a place where everybody is treated like a child of heavenly parents. That's the gospel that Jesus Christ is preaching and the gospel that he's telling his apostles to preach, the gospel of the kingdom and healing. Next is a really touching moment that I think sometimes we gloss over, maybe because the translation in King James is a little bit confusing. Chapter 9, verse 36 says, But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion on them, because they fainted and were scattered abroad as sheep, having no shepherd. The word fainted is a little bit interesting, but if we look at other translations of this verse, rather than saying that Jesus was moved with compassion on them because they fainted, other translations use different words to describe the condition of the sheep. They say things like, The sheep were harassed or helpless. They were wearied and cast away. They were distressed and downcast, dispirited and distressed, distressed and dejected, troubled and abandoned, faint and cast aside. It goes back to what we've read about why Jesus was dining with publicans and sinners. His mission was to go to the religious outcasts, those who felt unwelcome within the religious establishment or those who had even been cast out of the religious establishment. That is who his mission is to. And in this moment, it says that he looks upon the multitudes and is moved with compassion. He's filled with emotion because he looks out at them and sees that they have no shepherd. He sees that they are distressed, that they are troubled, that they are cast out, that they are harassed. These people, rather than being loved and included and nurtured and ministered to, have been cast out, have been labeled as sinners or as unclean. And that is not what the gospel of kingdom is about. And then he says this to his disciples, the harvest truly is plenteous, but the laborers are few. Pray ye therefore the Lord of the harvest that he will send forth laborers into his harvest. I know those verses are often read to promote missionary work. And I think that that's great. But reading them in context tells us what that mission should be. That mission should be to those who are feeling cast out, distressed, troubled, harassed, and helpless. And based on Jesus's mission, specifically those who have been cast out or feel harassed by the religious establishment. Those are the people that Jesus is saying have no shepherd and that we need to be going to, that the laborers who are going to these people are few, but that's what we should do as disciples of him. Now in Matthew, there's a chapter break right there, but I think it's important to move directly from those comments that Jesus just made into what happens next which is specifically that he gives authority and power to 12 of his disciples. It says in Matthew chapter 10, verse 1, he gave them power against unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal all manner of sicknesses and all manner of disease. 
I was struck this time in reading that verse, what the power and authority they received was for. They didn't receive power and authority to govern in any sort of way within the church. They received power and authority specifically against unclean spirits to cast them out and to be able to heal all manner of sicknesses and disease. That's the power and authority that Jesus Christ gave to these 12 apostles. In the next verses, it lists their names. And then after that, these are Jesus's words to them. He says, Go not into the way of the Gentiles and into any city of the Samaritans. Enter ye not. Interesting to note that Matthew's is the only gospel that indicates they should not go to the Gentiles or the Samaritans. All the others just say to go forth. As I've said on a few other instances, it does seem like Matthew had a particular bone to pick with the Jewish leaders of the day and looked at the Jewish people as really the focus of his mission. So interesting that only in Matthew's version does it say, don't go to the Gentiles or the Samaritans yet, focus on the Jewish people. In all the other versions, it just says, go forth. In verse 6, it says, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. I want to spend a minute on the word lost. I've been thinking about that. And then somebody who I follow on Instagram, Mindful Faith, I'll put a link to that down in the description in the show notes because they post a lot of things that really make me think. But they posted something specifically in relation to this word lost and how it doesn't mean a sheep that has chosen to wander and follow their own path, but more specifically, one that has been cast out. Again, consistent with the previous discussion about why Jesus spent time with sinners and publicans, why he looked upon the multitudes with compassion and what he sent the apostles to do. And as many of you know, one of my favorite things to do is look up the meaning of the original Greek words that are translated here into English. For this one, if we look at the definition of what the original Greek word means, it really doesn't seem to mean somebody who has chosen to leave the flock and just wander on their own. The meaning there is that they have been put out of the way or that they have been abolished, that they have been destroyed or that they have been declared or that it has been declared that they should be put to death. And also, while similar to the word lost, it means to lose something. So again, I think that that really informs the way that we look at these lost sheep. It's not that they have wandered into their own ways and they're just not listening to anybody. It means that they weren't welcome within the flock. They have been cast out. They have been told that they are worthy of death. The woman taken adultery obviously comes to mind when I think about that. She was one who had been told that she was worthy of death because of what she had done. But Jesus Christ defended her and told her that he did not condemn her. That is what the kingdom of God is about. That is what he is telling his apostles to go and do. And that's what I think it means to be a lost sheep. Not that you've wandered and just followed your own way, but that you've been made to feel unwelcome. Verse 7 says, And as ye go, preach, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Again, this is something they're supposed to teach, that the kingdom of God is coming. This message would be important to those that they're going to talk to because it means that there will be a place where you are welcome, where you are needed, where you are wanted, a place where all are treated as equals and a place where all people have all things in common. Verse 8 says, Heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, cast out devils. Freely ye have received freely give. Again, going back to what I said earlier, whenever Jesus is telling them to preach, I think every single time I've seen it also say that they should heal. Preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing go hand in hand. But I love that last line in verse 8. Freely ye have received, freely give. Each of us have received everything from our heavenly parents freely. We don't earn those things, especially grace and forgiveness. They have been given to us freely, and therefore we should freely give. 
we have been healed at least spiritually freely and therefore we should give spiritual healing freely this is the mission that jesus christ is giving to his apostles and it's a beautiful mission it's not to go out and condemn it's to go out and preach the gospel of the kingdom and to heal in the next verses, he tells them they basically shouldn't take anything for their own support, that they should rely on the people, that they should stay with people, and that they should rely on them for their help and their sustenance and their needs. And then he says something interesting in verse 14 that sometimes in the church we have attached a little bit of urban legend to. Let me tell you what I mean. Verse 14 says, And whosoever shall not receive you, nor hear your words, when you depart out of that house or city, shake off the dust of your feet. And that sounds a little bit odd, but essentially what it is, is a representation or an act that shows we no longer have any responsibility for these people who did not receive us. Now, I don't want to get into this too much because there's a story at the end of Luke chapter 9 that will really go against some urban legends that we may have attached this practice to. So we're going to put it down for a second, but we'll come back to it towards the end of the podcast. Let's move on to Mark chapter 5. This chapter starts out with one of the more interesting miracles that honestly puzzled me as a kid and maybe still does even a little bit today. What happens is Jesus and some of his disciples are on a boat. They go to the other side of Galilee and as they're getting off the boat, in verse 2 it says, Immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. In some of the other versions there are two men, but in Mark's there's one. This man had his dwelling among the tombs, and no man could bind him, no, not with chains. It says in verse 4 that sometimes people had tried to bind him or tie him up, and it just never worked. In verse 5 it says, And always night and day he was in the mountains and in the tombs, crying and cutting himself with stones. This man's situation was desperate. It sounds like he was just being internally tortured by whatever was going on. It says in verse 6, but when he saw Jesus afar off, he ran and worshipped him and cried with a loud voice and said, What have I to do with thee, Jesus, thou son of the most high God? I adjure thee by God that thou torment me not. And then Jesus responds, apparently speaking to the unclean spirit that was within this man, Come out of the man, thou unclean spirit. And Jesus asks, What is thy name? And he answered, saying, My name is Legion, for we are many. And this conversation between the unclean spirit and Jesus continues. They must know that he's there to cast them out, that he can't possibly let them stay in this man. And they say, send us into this herd of 2,000 swine nearby. Like I said, this one always felt a little bit odd to me, but that's what it says happened. And Jesus does that. He casts these unclean spirits, who they said were many, into these swine. They apparently run off a cliff and drown in the sea below. Must have been quite a sight. And then in verse 14, it says that they that fed the swine, or those that were herding the pigs, fled and told it in the city and in the country and went out to see what it was that was done. So there were people who were apparently tending these 2,000 pigs who had just run off of a cliff and been drowned in the sea, and they were wondering what was going on. And they came to Jesus, in verse 15, and see him that was possessed with the devil and had the legion sitting and clothed and in his right mind and they were afraid. So they come running to see what has happened, and they see Jesus and this man, who they apparently were familiar with, sitting and were immediately afraid. They recognized this man and knew that it was the man who was among the tombs, who they could probably hear crying and yelling and screaming at night, who they knew, as it says, to be cutting himself with stones, that he could not be bound. There were probably legends and scary stories of this man that were shared by those who lived nearby. 
they come upon Jesus and this man sitting and he was calm. It says he was sitting and clothed and in his right mind and they were afraid. In verse 16, it says that whoever was there with them told these individuals what happened, that Jesus had cast the unclean spirit out of this man, put it into the swine and they had run off the cliff. And then what they do next breaks my heart a little bit. In verse 17, it says, and they began to pray him to depart out of their coasts. These people, rather than being amazed at the healing of this man who had been tortured for who knows how long, instead asked Jesus to leave. They didn't want any part of what had happened. Now, you can understand maybe a little bit where they were coming from. They had just lost 2,000 head of swine, which were probably very important to them. But I wonder if rather than asking Jesus to leave, if they had trusted and been curious and asked if something would have been done about that situation. We don't know, but it does break my heart that rather than praising God for the healing of this man who had been absolutely tortured internally, they were more worried about their material wealth. And that makes me ponder on what my priorities are. Are there ways in which we prioritize our personal comfort over the healing of other people? Because I think that's what these people did. And in so doing, they essentially asked Jesus to leave, or they did ask Jesus to leave. But when we do that in our lives, we essentially do the same thing. If we prioritize our own comfort over the healing, inclusion, and helping of others, we are asking Jesus to leave. That's not preaching the gospel of the kingdom. That's not healing the sick and the afflicted. And so Jesus leaves. But before he leaves, this individual who he has just healed wants to follow Jesus, wants to go with him. This is what Jesus says. It says, He suffered him not, but saith unto him, Go home to thy friends, and tell them how great things the Lord hath done for thee, and hath had compassion on thee. Verse 20 tells us that the man departed and began to publish in the capitalist how great things Jesus had done for him, and all men did marvel. They probably knew who this was, and they were probably amazed that this healing had come to pass. They had to have known that it was from God. It's interesting that the man wanted to follow Jesus, wanted to go with him, wanted to be part of his disciples that were following him around, but Jesus tells him, no, you stay here and you tell people what I have done for you. Apparently, not following Jesus Christ, but telling others of the good that he had done for him was the best way that this man could help build the kingdom. An interesting thought. Next in Mark chapter 5 are two miraculous healings that are actually intertwined. The raising of the dead of Jairus' daughter as well as the healing of the woman with the issue of blood for 12 years. And these stories pick up in Mark chapter 5 verse 22. In the previous verse it says that Jesus passed over to the other side of the sea in a ship. Remember he was asked to leave where he was before. Verse 22 it says, Behold there cometh one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and when he saw him he fell at his feet. This man, Jairus, was apparently some sort of official, some sort of ruler, some sort of leader within the synagogue. He must have heard legends of Jesus, and when he saw him, came to him and fell at his feet. Verse 23 says this, And besought him greatly, saying, My little daughter lieth at the point of death. I pray thee, come and lay hands on her, that she may be healed and shall live. This man is desperate. His little daughter is at the point of death. Verse 24 tells us that Jesus went with him and much people followed him and thronged him. And as he's making his way to the house of Jairus to see his daughter, 
It says in verse 25, a certain woman which had an issue of blood 12 years and had suffered many things of many physicians and had spent all that she had and was nothing bettered, but rather grew worse. So as he's making his way to Jairus' house, there's this crowd thronging him all around him. As a part of this crowd is a nameless woman who it says had an issue of blood for 12 years. She had apparently spent all of her money on physicians and doctors, but was no better for it, but instead was worse. The reason that she would spend all of her money and do everything she could to be healed is because her life must have been terrible, not only uncomfortably medically because of this disease or sickness or issue that she had where she was basically constantly bleeding for 12 years, but because of this sickness, she was under Jewish law considered ritually unclean. And anybody who touched her was also considered ritually unclean. I can only imagine that those in her community likely did not want to associate with her. They didn't want to be close to her. They certainly didn't want to touch her. She probably had no friends, no family that would take her in because they didn't want to be considered ritually unclean. They didn't want to become impure because they had touched this woman in the sickness that she was dealing with, which is completely heartbreaking. So she literally spent all she had, but was no better for it, but instead grew worse. But when she had heard of Jesus, she came in the press behind him and touched his garment. For she said, if I may touch but his clothes, I shall be whole. So this crowd is just thronging him and she comes in and touches just his garment. And I really wonder if that was out of respect for him. Again, if she had touched any person, they would be considered ritually unclean. But she hoped, she prayed, she had faith in if she would just touch Jesus's garment that she would be made whole, that she would be clean, and that maybe she could have her life, which had likely been completely destroyed by this disease, back. Verse 29 tells us, And straightway the fountain of her blood was dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of that plague. All she did was touch Jesus's clothes, touch his garment, and she was immediately healed of something that had been plaguing her, ruining her life for 12 years. In verse 30, it says that Jesus knew that virtue had gone out of him and turned about and asked, who touched my clothes? Now, Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He must know who touched his clothes. He must know exactly what just happened. So it makes me wonder if maybe this question is coming for those around him. If this woman had been bleeding for 12 years, that's likely not something that was easy to hide. There were probably people in the crowd who knew this woman, who knew that she was unclean, and who knew that nobody should touch her. But I think Jesus approaches this situation in a way that makes it clear to them that she is healed. The disciples give an unhelpful response. They say, look at this multitude thronging you, and you're asking, who touched you? Verse 32 says he looked, he looked around to see who had done this thing, but the woman, fearing and trembling, knowing what was done in her, came and fell down before him and told him all the truth. She comes, falls down before him, and tells him what happened. We don't know exactly what she said, but I have to imagine it must have been impossible for her to recount all of the anguish, all of the rejection, all of the sadness that she must have been dealing with for so long. But she comes and falls at his feet and tells him the truth. This is what he responds with. Daughter, thy faith hath made thee whole. Go in peace and be whole of thy plague. 
another miracle, another incredible miracle where Jesus tells the recipient that their faith made them whole. This is such a consistent message from Jesus Christ. Remember last week we talked about the Roman centurion, how others were very focused on that centurion's worthiness, but Jesus Christ told him that the faith brought the miracle. This is such a consistent message whenever Jesus Christ provides healing. Thy faith hath made thee whole, go in peace. She may have been considered ritually unclean by the church, but to Jesus Christ, she was a person in need of healing. He was not afraid to touch, to come in contact with, to associate with this person who all others must have cast out of their presence, cast out of their synagogues, cast out of their homes, cast out of their company. Jesus Christ instead heals her. And that is what we should do. There are so many people who are considered quote-unquote ritually unclean or impure or unworthy. And those are the people who should be the subject of our ministry, the subject of our love, the subject of our inclusion. I almost wonder if it's going to get too repetitive, but that is the message of Jesus Christ. Bring in the outcasts. Help them feel loved. Help them receive healing. But remember, Jesus Christ, when this happened, was on his way to Jairus' house to help his daughter. Verse 35 says, While he yet spake to the woman who had just been healed, there came from the ruler of the synagogue's house a person which said, Thy daughter is dead. Why troublest thou the master any further? Somebody comes and says, Unfortunately, your daughter has died. There's nothing more that Jesus can do. As soon as Jesus heard the word that was spoken, he said unto the ruler of the synagogue, Be not afraid, only believe. He takes with him Peter, James, and John, and they go to the person's house. When they go in there, there are other people there who are already mourning the death of Jairus' daughter. He tells them, Jesus tells them that, his daughter is not dead, but just sleepeth. And it says that they laugh him to scorn. That's such a painful verse to read. Jesus is there to perform a miracle, to provide healing. And these people, rather than believing in Jesus's love and mercy and power, laugh. But when they had been put out of the house, Jesus took the father and the mother and went into where their daughter was lying. And it says that he took the damsel by hand and said unto her, Damsel, I say unto thee, arise. And of course, straightway the damsel arose and walked, and she was of the age of 12 years, and they were astonished with great astonishment. Jesus Christ raised this 12-year-old girl from the dead. Others had said that there was no hope. Others had laughed to scorn the thought that Jesus Christ could do something about this situation. But Jairus had faith. And Jesus performed a miracle. One other thing I'll point out, I love that these two stories are intertwined because they're almost two opposites of a spectrum. One healing was performed for a woman who was outcast and considered ritually unclean by the religious establishment. Jairus, on the other hand, it says, was an official in a synagogue, was a ruler within a synagogue. He was part of this religious establishment, but he had faith in Jesus Christ as well, and so he also received healing for his daughter. Jesus Christ is there for anybody who has faith in his power, in his grace, and in his mercy. From those who have been cast out of religion and are considered unclean, to those who are part of it, as long as they have faith in him and don't deny his ability to bring healing and mercy to everybody. Jairus would have witnessed Jesus Christ healing the woman with the issue of blood. He may have even been part of considering her ritually unclean. 
And maybe it was important for him to see that, to know that Jesus was there for everybody. There aren't many miracles that are intertwined like that, where Jesus performs one while he's on his way to perform another, but these two are. And I wonder if that's why, because it's showing us that he's here for everybody. Let's move on to Luke chapter 9. This chapter begins with, again, the calling of the twelve and Jesus Christ giving them power and authority. Similar to the account in Matthew, it says that he gives them power and authority over all devils and to cure diseases. He doesn't give them power and authority over people or over administration of the church. He gives them power and authority over devils and to cure diseases. And like we've mentioned a few times in verse 2, it says he sent them to preach the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. That message is so consistent. The apostles and anybody who are disciples of Christ are sent to preach the kingdom of God, where everybody is treated as equals, and to heal the sick. We're there to include and to heal. That's what disciples of Jesus Christ do. Next is one of the more famous stories from the New Testament, the feeding of the 5,000. But I think we skip to this miracle too fast and don't remember how it started. As we read in the beginning of the chapter, Jesus Christ had sent his apostles. And then in verse 10, it says, And the apostles, when they were returned, told him all that they had done. They're giving Jesus Christ a report of the things that they had happened during their ministry. And Jesus took them and went aside privately into a desert place. But in verse 11, it tells us the people, when they knew it, followed him. So Jesus Christ is spending time with his apostles. They retire to a secluded desert place so that they can talk more about what had happened as part of their ministry. But the people followed him. He didn't stop them, though. It says he received them and spake unto them of the kingdom of God and healed them that had need of healing. There's that message again. He spake unto them of the kingdom of God, and then he healed those that were in need of healing. I like that last line of that verse. It doesn't say that he healed those who deserved healing. It doesn't say he healed those who had earned healing or were worthy of healing. He healed anybody who had need of healing. And you might even argue in a place where he had intended to only spend time with his apostles. They tried to go somewhere secluded, but people followed him. He didn't refuse them. He healed them. In verse 12, it tells us, As the day wore away, the twelve came to Jesus and said, We need to send these people away so that they can get some food to eat. We don't have anything. And we're in a desert place where it's not really possible to get anything either. Jesus Christ says, Give them to eat. The disciples respond, we have no more but five loaves and two fishes. And then in verse 14, it tells us the number of men that were there. They were about 5,000 men. But that number does not include women and children, which means the number there may have been even twice as much. We just don't know. Jesus tells them to make these people sit down by 50s in a company. They did that, and then Jesus took, in verse 16, the five loaves and the two fishes Looking up to heaven, he blessed them and break and gave to the disciples to set before the multitude. And they did eat and were all filled. There was taken up of fragments that remained to them twelve baskets. So not only had Jesus miraculously healed five to ten thousand people, he had done it in a place where he hadn't even intended for them to come, a place where he had intended to be secluded and speak privately with his apostles. But people wanted to be close to him. They followed him. He didn't refuse them. He taught them of the kingdom. He healed those that had need of healing. And then he provided food for all of them miraculously. Such an incredible story. And I think the background of how they got to this place and why they needed that food makes it even more powerful. 
Next in this chapter is what's often called Peter's confession. Jesus asks his disciples, whom say the people that I am? And they answer and say, some say John the Baptist, some say Elias, and others say that one of the old prophets is risen again. Verse 20, Jesus says, but whom say ye that I am? Peter answering said, the Christ of God, or the anointed one, the Messiah, the one that is to come. Jesus tells them in verse 21 that they should not tell anybody. And in verse 22, he tells them what's going to happen in the future. The Son of Man must suffer things and be rejected of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be slain and be raised the third day. Jesus tells them, maybe for the first time, that he is not only going to suffer, but that he is going to be rejected. He doesn't tell them here that he is going to die on a cross, but he must know that. And so it's interesting when we read the next verse, what he says to them. And he said to them all, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Remember in the previous verse, it said that Jesus would suffer and be rejected, specifically rejected, of the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, and that he would be slain and rise again. And then he tells his disciples, his apostles, that if they are to follow him, they must take up their cross. I think it's important to think about why Jesus suffered and why he was rejected. It goes back to what his mission was, and even the things that we've seen in the chapters we've talked about today. His mission was to the outcasts. Think of the miracles that we've talked about just in this podcast alone. He healed a woman who was considered ritually unclean for 12 years. He healed a man who had lived among the tombs and at night was crying and screaming and cutting himself. He spent time with sinners and publicans sharing intimate settings with them that other religious leaders would never even dream of doing because it was considered ritually unclean. He healed on the Sabbath. He welcomed outcasts. He forgave sins that others thought should not be forgiven. He condemned hypocrisy within religious leadership. He defended adulterers. He included Samaritans and even in one of his key teachings called them good. His mission was to those who had been cast out of the religious establishment. His mission was to gather those who had been lost, not because they were wandering, but because the community, the church had lost them. That is what his mission is. And that is why he suffered and was rejected. He then immediately tells his disciples, tells us that if we are to follow him, we need to take up our cross. Sometimes we think that our cross is just whatever our personal trials are, and that may be a part of it. But if we are to take up the cross, if we are to follow in Jesus's footsteps, we will be rejected for including those that others thought should be excluded. We will be rejected for forgiving those that others thought should be punished. We will be rejected for defending those who are labeled as sinners. That's why Jesus was rejected. And if we are to take up our cross, that's why we will be rejected as well. A fantastic quote from Richard Rohr comes to mind. This is from his book, Universal Christ. If you have not read that book, you absolutely should. It's also on Audible if you want to listen to it. He says this, The point of the Christian life is not to distinguish oneself from the ungodly, but to stand in radical solidarity with everyone and everything else. This is the full, final, and intended effect of the incarnation symbolized by its finality in the cross, which is God's great act of solidarity instead of judgment. Powerful words. The next verse 
is one that we're probably familiar with. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it, but whosoever will lose his life for my sake, the same shall save it. And as I've said already, if we are to follow Jesus's example in how to lose our life, it is in helping and ministering to the marginalized by giving them love, mercy, hope, and including them in the kingdom of God. All right, next is the Mount of Transfiguration. This is in Luke chapter 9, verses 28 through 36. And in our church, this is often where it's said that Jesus Christ and others gave priesthood keys to Peter, James, and John. If you go to Gospel Doctrine class, you'll probably hear a lot about that. We won't talk about that here. We'll just talk about what's in the scriptures. It says in verse 28 that on the eighth day, or in other words, eight days after those previous teachings we had just talked about, about how Jesus Christ would be would suffer and be rejected and that we must also take up our cross and follow him, it says that he had Peter, James, and John go up with him into a mountain to pray. In verse 29, it says that as he prayed, the fashion of his countenance was altered and his raiment was white and glistening. Peter, James, and John were seeing something incredible. And behold, there taught with him two men which were Moses and Elias or Elijah. It's significant that it's Moses and Elijah. These are like the two main prophets for the children of Israel. Moses led them out of Egypt and Elijah was just incredible. Another reason I think it's cool that Elijah is here is remember when Jesus Christ was essentially announcing his ministry to the people in his hometown synagogue of Nazareth, when he tells them that a prophet is without honor in his own land, he references two stories. One is when Elijah went to the widow of Zarephath. Elijah keeps popping up in Jesus's ministry. So Peter, James, and John are there and they see Jesus talking to Moses and Elijah. Verse 31 tells us what they were talking about. Who appeared in glory and spake of his decease, which he should accomplish at Jerusalem. That's a really confusing word that's in the King James translation that he spoke of them concerning his decease. The word here that's used is exodus as in the book of Exodus. It's the same word. So Jesus Christ is speaking to Moses and Elijah about his exodus or his departure. He's talking to them about his approaching death, what he just told his apostles about eight days before this, that he would suffer and be rejected, suffer death, and then be raised again on the third day. That's what he's talking to Moses and Elijah about. Verse 32 tells us that Peter and they that were with him were heavy with sleep, and when they were awake, they saw his glory and the two men that stood with him. So it's hard to tell based on this verse how much of this conversation Peter, James, and John actually saw. It sounds like Peter, James, and John fell asleep, Moses and Elijah came down, and then when they woke up, they saw them talking. Now, I can relate to Peter, James, and John a little bit. Sometimes staying awake is hard. Apparently up here on the Mount of Transfiguration with something incredible happening, they fell asleep. It was probably happening at night. They were probably very tired, apparently tired enough to fall asleep. In verse 33, it tells us that Moses and Elijah departed. And then Peter says to Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here. And then he asks Jesus if they should build three shelters, one for Moses, one for Elijah, and one for Jesus Christ. It seems like Peter wants to preserve this moment. Maybe he's feeling bad about having missed some because they fell asleep. For whatever reason, Peter makes this sort of off-the-wall recommendation, I think because, again, he just wants to live in this moment. It's amazing. It's beautiful. It's glorious. And Peter wants to stay in it. In fact, at the end of this statement, it says that Peter, not knowing what he said, 
but while Peter spake, a cloud comes and overshadows them. This is a little bit reminiscent of the cloud that led the children of Israel by day. While they were in the cloud, verse 35 says, there came a voice out of the cloud saying, this is my beloved son, hear him. And when the voice was passed, Jesus was found alone. I wonder if this experience is telling Peter, James, and John that Jesus is the one that they should be looking to. Moses and Elijah are incredible prophets. They did incredible things. Moses' exodus from Egypt was incredible, but it's the exodus of Jesus Christ, the departure, the death of the Son of God that really matters. They hear a voice from heaven telling them that this is my beloved Son. Hear him. All the prophets before have been pointing you to him. Listen to him, hear him, follow him. It goes on and says that they kept it close and told no man in those days any of those things which they had seen. And then in verse 37, it tells us on the next day, they came down from the hill. I was reminded of another quote from The Universal Christ by Richard Rohr, especially in regards to Peter wanting to stay up there on the hill in this glorious moment but that the next day they had to descend back down the hill and continue what their mission truly was. Check out this quote. Most of us understandably start the journey assuming that God is up there, and our job is to transcend this world to find him. We spend so much time to get up there, we miss that God's big leap in Jesus was to come down here. So much of our worship and religious effort is the spiritual equivalent of trying to go up what has become the down escalator. I suspect that the up there mentality is the way most people's spiritual search has to start. But once the real inner journey begins, once you come to know that in Christ God is forever overcoming the gap between human and divine, the Christian path becomes less about climbing and performance and more about descending, letting go, and unlearning. Knowing and loving Jesus is largely about becoming fully human, wounds and all, instead of ascending spiritually or thinking we can remain unwounded. Peter was wanting to stay up on this mountain in this glorious moment with Jesus and Moses and Elijah. He wanted to build them shelter so they could just stay up there. He said, it is good for us to be here not knowing what he saith. Our mission, I don't think, is to get up there. Remember, after this amazing experience, they went back down the mountain to fulfill Jesus Christ's true mission, which should be all of our missions, which is to be down here and to help those who need our help, the downtrodden and the outcasts. And as they're coming down this mountain, it says, a man of the company cried out saying, Master, I beseech thee, look upon my son, for he is mine only child. And lo, a spirit taketh him, and he suddenly crieth out, and it teareth him, and he foameth again, and bruising him hardly departeth from him. And I besought thy disciples to cast him out, and they could not. Jesus, please help me. Please heal my son. I asked your disciples, and they couldn't do it. Jesus gives a bit of a painful rebuke. He says, O faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you and suffer you? Bring thy son hither. Think of the things Jesus Christ has just taught his apostles, his disciples. He's telling them that he is going to be delivered up, that he's going to suffer and be rejected and die and then rise again. He's not always going to be here. He's just given them the power and authority 
to heal and to preach the gospel of the kingdom. He won't always be here and he needs his apostles, his disciples to carry on his mission. They weren't able to heal this man's son, but Jesus is. It says in verse 42, and as he was yet a coming, the devil threw him down and tear him. And Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the child and delivered him again to his father. Casting out unclean spirits might feel a little bit out of reach for us, and apparently was for some of Jesus' apostles or disciples here. But what we can do is comfort those that stand in need of comfort, mourn with those that mourn, and help bear one another's burdens. That's what we've covenanted to do in baptism. That's what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ says this next to his disciples. He's getting really serious about trying to get this message through to them. Let these sayings sink down into your ears, for the Son of Man shall be delivered into the hands of men. But in verse 45, it tells us that his apostles, his disciples, still didn't understand. They will come to understand, but they're not there yet. A quick note on verses 49 and 50. This is an interesting exchange where John answered and said unto the master, We saw one casting out devils in thy name, and we forbade him, because he followeth not with us. They saw somebody casting out devils, and they told him to stop, because he's not part of Jesus' following. Jesus said unto him, Forbid him not, for he that is not against us is for us. I love this verse because it's such a great reminder that the kingdom of God is so much bigger than any one church. I was reminded of this quote where Ezra Taft Benson quoted Orson F. Whitney. It was also recently quoted in General Conference by Dallin H. Oaks, but with a slightly different take on it. This is what the quote says. God, the father of us all, uses the men of the earth, especially good men, to accomplish his purposes. It has been true in the past, it is true today, and it will be true in the future. Perhaps the Lord needs such men on the outside of his church to help it along, said the late Orson F. Whitney of the Quorum of the Twelve. They are among its auxiliaries and can do more good for the cause where the Lord has placed them than anywhere else. Hence, some are drawn into the fold and receive a testimony of the truth, while others remain unconverted, the beauties and glories of the gospel being veiled temporarily from their view for a wise purpose. The Lord will open their eyes in his own due time. God is using more than one people for the accomplishment of his great and marvelous work. The Latter-day Saints cannot do it all. It is too vast, too arduous for any one people. The message I want to draw from this quote is what he said towards the end. God is using more than one people for the accomplishment of his work. That is definitely true. Our heavenly parents are using people from so many different churches, so many different countries, cultures, religions, beliefs, to further their work. We, as members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, are only a tiny, small part of that work. We need to do what we can do, but we also need to know and understand that others are being inspired by God to do the things that they do, because that is where God has called them to be. That is where they can do the most good. We can probably do the most good where we are. Others can do the most good where they are. That's what Jesus is teaching these people here. He tells them, don't forbid him to cast out devils in my name just because he's not part of our following. He's doing good. Let him do good. We have got to stop thinking in our church that we are the only ones with the truth from our heavenly parents, with pure knowledge of divine principles. So many other churches, so many other beliefs, so many other cultures have beautiful things that we can learn from, and they are accomplishing divine work. So instead of fighting against them, let's work with them. 
All right, two more things that we're going to touch on, and don't worry, I didn't forget about the dusting off of the feet. That's what we're talking about next. In Luke chapter 9, verses 51 through 56, it says that Jesus and his disciples were going to go to Jerusalem, and they sent messengers before them, this is in verse 52, to the village of the Samaritans to make ready for him. So they were going to travel through Samaria to Jerusalem, and Jesus sent people ahead of him to make things ready in Samaria. But it says in verse 53 that they, the Samaritans, did not receive him because his face was as though he would go to Jerusalem. This goes back to the old disagreements between the Samaritans and those in Jerusalem. The Samaritans didn't take kindly who were traveling, who were just traveling through their country on their way to Jerusalem to worship there because they worshiped in Samaria and their people had been really hurt by those in Jerusalem who told them that their worship site in Samaria was not valid, that they were worshiping idols and not worshiping in the correct way. So because of that, their culture had sort of taken on this tradition of not helping those who were simply traveling through Samaria on their way to Jerusalem to worship there. Since those in Samaria knew or understood that Jesus and his disciples were just traveling through on their way to Jerusalem, it says that they did not receive them. This does break my heart a little bit because think of all the things that Jesus has done in Samaria so far. He taught so many people there, including the woman at the well who brought many people to the knowledge of their Messiah. He healed so many people in that area. He has done so much good. But in this moment, they say that they will not help him. And verse 54 tells us how his disciples respond. And when his disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, wilt thou that we command fire to come down from heaven and consume them even as Elias did? Remember, they've just been called as apostles. They've been given power and authority. And here they're saying, well, the Samaritans aren't going to receive us. You told us that those who don't receive us, we should shake the dust off our feet, that we should say we are absolved of any responsibility for these people. So Jesus should be called down fire on these Samaritans who have said that they won't receive you. They may even be thinking of times in the Hebrew Bible where, based on the scriptures, God rained down fire on enemies of the children of Israel. But they should know by now that that is not how Jesus operates. He says this to them in verse 55. But he turned and rebuked them and said, Ye know not what manner of spirit ye are of. For the Son of Man is not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. His apostles think that they should call down fire to destroy this place that would not receive them. Jesus Christ would never want his disciples to do that. He rebukes them and his words are strong and stern. Ye know not what manner of spirit ye are of. This is not what we are about. We are not about condemning. We are not about raining down fire. We are not here to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And I think that's important to mention because this strange thing about shaking the dust off of our feet, you may have heard urban legends about how missionaries would do that after leaving a town and then terrible things would happen to that town or a shop or something like that where they did it. Those stories need to be left behind. That is not what Jesus Christ wants his disciples to do. He tells them very specifically right here that that is not the spirit that we are of. We are not about destroying lives. We are about saving lives. So if you are ever tempted to destroy or condemn, that is not the spirit that we are of. We are about saving lives, not destroying them. All right, let's go back just a few verses so that we can end with something that's not a rebuke. In verses 46 through 48, it says that there arose a disagreement among the apostles who was the greatest. 
And Jesus, perceiving their hearts, took a child and set him by him. So the apostles are having this disagreement. Who's the greatest? Jesus Christ gets a child and sets him next to him and said unto them, Whosoever shall receive this child in my name receiveth me. Whosoever shall receive me receiveth him that sent me. For he that is least among you all, the same shall be great. What does this mean? Why is Jesus Christ taking a child and telling them that if we receive a child, then we receive him? Receiving a child requires true generosity and love without any expectation of receiving anything in return. As I ponder this, I couldn't help but remember how Adam Miller closes his book, Original Grace. It's so powerful and I have to share it with you. As I said, this is right at the end of his book. And it's important to know before reading this that a large part of the book is based around how the author really started to learn about what grace was in reading Stephen Robinson's book, Believing Christ. That's a very old book that if you grew up in the church, you may have had in your home. I know my parents did. And in portions of this book, Adam is talking about how he would love to ask Stephen some questions about some things he wrote in that book, whether maybe the way we understand grace might be a little bit different. 25 years after the original publication of that book, there was sort of a symposium where some papers were presented about the book. Adam presented a paper there, but then the closing speaker of that on the next day was Stephen Robinson. He talked about how much the book meant, some things he might write differently that I won't share here, but then closed his remarks, and this is how Adam closes his book, with this, which speaks perfectly to what Jesus Christ has just taught about the importance of receiving a child. And by doing so, we receive him and receive our heavenly parents. This is what it says. Robinson concluded by confessing that he didn't especially love theology. Where theology always wanted definitions, he much preferred analogies. Everything you'll ever need to know about grace, he said, can be learned in the following way. Hold a baby in your arms, perhaps while the family is out, perhaps in a chair, perhaps your own son or daughter. What do you feel? An absolute love. What has that baby done to deserve your love? Nothing. What would you sacrifice for that baby? Everything. This is God. This, Robinson said, is grace. Whenever I think about grace now, I can't help but think of that analogy. It's a powerful analogy. Each of us is that baby. Each of us is a beggar. Each of us is the sinner. Each of us is the woman at the well, the sinful woman who loved much, the paralytic let down from the roof and forgiven and healed by Jesus. That is each of us. Jesus Christ holds each of us in his arms. And though we may have done nothing to deserve that love, he loves us so infinitely and so perfectly that he would and has done anything and everything for us. That is love. That is grace. And looking at others that way is what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. Accepting them and giving them grace and mercy and healing even if we feel they have done nothing to deserve that grace, mercy, and healing. Thank you so much for joining Latter-day Stonecatchers for another week of study. Remember, your heavenly parents love you, I love you, catch stones, don't throw them. We'll see you next week. If you're listening on the podcast, 
Thank you. I hope you enjoyed it. And it would mean so much to me if you would leave a review on Apple or wherever you listen to your podcast. That is such a great way to let others know that they can trust Latter-day Stonecatchers as a Come Follow Me resource. If you're able, I would also ask if you can share it on social media or with your family and friends. The more Stonecatchers we can get in our congregations and classrooms, the better we'll be. Thanks again for listening.